Hey everyone, on this week's episode of Rising Giants, we have the pleasure of hosting Yulia Kuri on the show. Yulia is the founder and CEO of Animal Mama, one of Cambodia's most prominent veterinary hospitals, as well as Home of Heroes, the first retirement home in the world for demining dogs. We really hope you enjoy tuning into this episode. Yeah, it's very nice. I mean, I love what he did with, with I, I admire the entrepreneurs like that who, who do fill the spaces that are extremely needed for Cambodian markets, right? I mean, like sound school, right? We always need, there was school before that still exists, a music school. But what Gabi did with his school is really phenomenal. You know, just the marketing and and branding and the engagement of students and sort of the variety of, of choices that students have. I, I phenomenal really Mm -hmm. plus you know he really engaged in in music scene as well as a musician himself he puts together concerts and so yeah i i i i really love it yeah he's also i guess co-producing uh madam butterfly yeah 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 yes yes, i saw that will you be attending or Uh, yeah you better (laughs) help me that's the first one that's one thing that we always kind of feel deprived of in Cambodia is a lack of theaters and art spaces, like proper ones, right? Like established places to go to. Because when I was a kid and as I grew up as well, I mean, in my family, going to a theater or any type of performance was in itself a weekly event. So we had to dress up and we had to read about things and we'd go to a theater where it's drama theater or it's an opera or it's a ballet, but it had to be something we had to do on a regular basis. And we loved it and we grew up with it. And then I grew up with it. And so coming to Cambodia, like I've been working in the Middle East and Africa and there it's sometimes exists, sometimes doesn't, depends on where you are. And then I came from Cambodia, from to Cambodia from Yemen. So obviously zero. And then I come here and again, it's a zero. But now, you know, they're getting better a bit with like Phnom Penh players and this and that. But established things, you know, mm-hmm. building, an architectural thing also missing. Yeah, yeah. it's, yeah, I, from his episode, it was super interesting because he had mentioned that his goal was to sell a hundred pianos, like proper grand pianos. And yeah. I'll be one just, of his customers for sure. <laughs> <laughs> one day. Yeah. He, well, that's the thing he said. He, he was surprised, you know, there wasn't a market like that at all, you know, in just after 2010, you know, 2011, 2012, around that time. Yeah. Especially here when the culture has been destroyed just so recently. So mm-hmm. everything has to kind of regrow. It's almost like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. I mean, it's. I guess it's the same with our industry. I mean, 13 years ago, there was nothing. And when I started, everybody said, oh my God, you're crazy. You're going to get out. Like you're going to lose all your money. And then six months, you're going to be begging on the streets and this and that. And I was like, okay, fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, and here we go. Like seven years later, we're doing okay. Thank God. Mm-hmm. So it's just, you know, you got to believe in what you in in your vision you know i mean there is a the greater vision uh for i think for gabi and for myself and for people like us and that vision is in the industry that you're working and not in the money that you can make out of it and so Mm -hmm. this is where i think the success maybe comes from because i didn't i didn't set up like (laughs) spread animal mama all over cambodia at all 
it was just, you know, response to the need and the gap. But mm -hmm. then, you know, it's not a cheap business to maintain or not cheap thing to maintain. I mean, you need medicine, you need equipment, you need spaces to, for hospitalization, you need staff, you need bazillion things, right? And that's why people were very worried that I'm getting myself into something I don't understand and something that might get me in trouble. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah. but I was belie I believe that once we educate people on what they need, and that it's kind of like it's it sounds like a sales pitch, but it's not. Mm -hmm. Because you know, if you're dying of cancer and you don't know that you have cancer, right? I mean, you wouldn't go to a doctor and oncologist. So you need to educate people that it exists, the problem exists, you face that problem every single day of your life. And here we have an answer for you. And these are the answers, right? And so more you have that very, very simple formula of here's what happens. Here's what happens to you. This is how, what questions to ask. And this is where to answer, to find the answers to your questions. You're done. Yeah. And I think it, it's the same with music. Like mm -hmm. a lot of parents want their children to be better than them. I want my kid to grow up better than me. And therefore I want her to not only pay, play piano, I was educated in that, but I want her to play guitar and piano and, and sing and perform and do coding and all that stuff. And so these questions and needs arise, but there was no, no one who is giving me a solution to my, to my needs until certain people like Gabby came into the market and said, okay, we're here. We can do it mm. for you. Mm. Well, and what's really interesting tying into having you on Rising Giants, you're the founder of Animal Mama Veterinary Hospital. During that time as well, as we were talking back about going back to Gabby and just after 2010, 2010, 2010 to 2012 timeframe, you'd mentioned a little bit about how you came from Yemen Maybe if you could give us a quick background about your early years prior to Cambodia, what you were doing and what really led to your first jump or step into Cambodia during that time. Cambodia. Yeah. So my background is in, I started, studied psychology, neuroscience, and I actually worked in animal labs and, and uh, research and cognitive research in California. And then I, it was during the Iraq war that I was there and I, I was at Berkeley and of course, hello, I mean, anything political that happens at Berkeley, every scientist is on the street <laughs> picketing with, with some kind of statement, right? right? So I got really interested in, in, in politics at the time and I majored, I double majored in, in political science as well. And as I was, so I, I, I sort of went from, from medicine or pre-med to poli-sci. And then I went to do my uh, master's degree in London School of Economics for social policy. And then I worked uh, with agencies like Caritas International, Human Rights, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, if I mentioned it, UN, both uh, UNHCR and UNRWA in Palestinian refugee camps. So I've traveled around Middle East and Africa a lot. And uh, at some point I got quite disillusioned with, so I am a refugee myself. And so being a refugee, working for refugees is sort of the dream. And 
But then I became very disillusioned with the whole international humanitarian business <clears throat> because it is a business and nothing else. And I decided that this was, I had enough. So Cambodia for me was sort of, for the first time I followed my partner at the time for his job rather than vice versa. So um, uh, he had a, a gig, six months gig here in Cambodia. And I thought, okay, I'll come with you and I'll just be sort of a leisure wife or some some sort of that thing. And then six months later, six weeks later, I brought my first kitten from the market, rescue kitten, I guess. And that's how it started, I guess, in terms of animals. And six months after we came here, we decided that we will stay because it was easy to stay. The first thing, it was very easy to stay. And the second thing, it was the potential to make a difference was huge in both business worlds and humanitarian worlds and rescue world, whatever you wanted to do. So yeah, we decided to stay. We had a company that we worked together in, but I kept on rescuing and I kept on one humanitarian, always humanitarian kind of thing. So, you know, I always got involved in all kinds of things and, and children's rights and then some fundraising for animals. I was I served as Wildlife Alliance ambassador for some time. Uh, and so, and as all of this was happening, I kept on rescuing animals and going to the vet. And that was always kind of on the background as a as like a background music in a way. And then one day I realized that I was literally bleeding money on the vets that wasn't necessarily giving the answers that I was seeking in terms of the answers for the health and well-being of the animals. And and I had already about 50 animals in my house that I, I was looking after and I had already stuff that was looking after them. So it was becoming like full on. And then a friend of mine told me that, you know, you really need to have a vet, vet clinic. And I said, what vet clinic? What do I know about vets? I mean, <laughs> come on. He's like, no, 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 it's going to be fine. Just going to be for your own animals. You just hire a vet and a nurse and they'll just look after your own shelter. I said, all right, that's fine. So, and he offered to build it for me. So I rented the a house on the same street that I was living on. And he built a very simple clinic at the time one room and one one reception room and that's how it started I, I hired my first vet and my first nurse and then I just jumped in right into it I think it's one of those things with myself I cannot do anything 50% or 70% it's like when I do something obsession yeah. and so I I got full on obsessed about kind of making it better and better and better. And as you're doing research and you're realizing like, oh, okay, I need this also. And I need this also. And then suddenly I just, it went on. It's, it snowballed to the point where we are here today and there's three clinics and the forthcomings. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that's a really great background and framing of your life prior to coming to Cambodia and especially how you started with launching what, is today animal mama <laughs> I, i'm really curious to to better understand what the veterinary landscape was like during that time you had mentioned that you there were times when you weren't necessarily getting the answers that you wanted or the care wasn't the best but just uh would like to better understand what it was like on that front well there wasn't any besides one foreign vet, very extremely basic in everything, but quite expensive for what it was 
now that I understand it, sort of I look back and I go, mm. but even then it was something that uh, it wasn't making much sense to me. And when you have a monopoly of the market and the market is not educated about something in particular, you, you can do whatever you want, you know, and, and you can do whatever you want with your customer. And especially if your main client or main patient is somebody who cannot say what, what's wrong with them. Mm-hmm. So veterinary practice can be, if it's unethical, can go very far financially telling people whatever. I mean, you wouldn't know what's wrong with your animal unless the vet tells you so, right? And when people don't understand and there is no education and there is no no answers, there is no alternatives, then it just becomes, remember 13 years ago, it's not like today. We didn't have smartphones massively like that. Smartphones just started coming in and, you know, the early adopters, as they call them, right? They had their smartphones, but not everyone had them. We didn't Google every term that we needed at that time. So there was there were so many limitations. And of course, the population was not, you know, educated on, on animal welfare at all. So people who were coming to the to that one vet were people who were either foreigners or folks who did have pets and just felt they needed to to come or their pet was sick or something like that. But even, yeah, it was, there was no industry. There was this one vet institution that was serving as, as you know, like a point of contact for some people who had some dealings with animals, but there were no rescues in institutions. There was no, absolutely nothing. So I was here and I believe it was 2011 or 12, then the Phnom Penh Post ran a, a story, a cover story about Madame Lone. And Madame Lone is that this Cambodian lady, well, at the time especially, that was feeding animals in the pagodas, and she was the only one. And, you know, they, and, and then she had this massive amount of animals in her house as well, like 300 animals in her house. And, and they ran this this front front story, front page story about her and how she, you know, what she has to deal with and stuff. And as usual, the expat community started gathering around the coast. And and there was the first agency set up at the time around Madame Lone and the rescue of animals called Phnom Penh Animal Welfare. Society or something like that. Peepaws, right? I mean, they they still exist now. And then they they somehow split into two because they didn't see eye to eye with the loan, and the, the board of directors didn't get along. They split into two, and now it's Peepaws and Kappa. And then this is I, I don't want to go into history of other people. What I'm saying is that 2012 there was a very first movement towards understanding that there are animals outside our houses and they needed help and there was somebody feeding animals in the pagodas and we just realized oh wow pagodas animals in in the pagodas what happened so that's where the movement started among the expats is understanding the rescue agent or the rescue element right Madame Lone, an original rescuer, I guess, or the original known rescuer of Cambodia, 
And then I guess myself and, and my house started becoming a rescue. I had the macaque for 10 months, almost one year until we built him an enclosure and pumped him out rescue center. And that's how I became a, an ambassador for Wildlife Alliance. So we've rescued pretty much uh, through my house. We've had everything. And so I set up that my house was for a long time a, a sort of shelter. And then I moved out of there. And then it still is a shelter for animals that need care. Where as we're building more clinics and as there are more rescuers that are coming on, on the market or you know, within the industry, we're trying to make our shelter efforts smaller and our medical care for other rescuers larger because this is what we can do better. Instead of feeding kittens day in and day out, there are rescuers that can do that. And what we can provide is the care that these animals need uh, to be to, to grow well, to, to be healthy, and to get adopted into a new homes. So I don't know. I went on a tangent. I don't know where we started. <laughs> no, it's no, it completely it completely makes sense. Um, you know, it's starting in the early days and and looking at it from there's a business opportunity to for the for for you personally because you were had taken on so many pets and and had and and we're watching over so so many that it was it was for your best interest to try and you know set up set up a another veterinary practice just for for your own sake but then just for my own sake yeah right but then noticing that there's there's a whole another aspect of veterinary which is this rescue side and seeing the growth of of um that community and how you know in those early days for for you how were you able to, um, you know, kind of mesh the two together and be able to incorporate these rescue aspects into, into your, into Animal Llama? And how did these different, I guess, channels of how you support animals within Cambodia come about? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, my model of operation was always based on what I don't want to do. And, and that is, I never wanted to be dependent on donations because, as I said, I came from humanitarian world and I saw how dependency on donations can stifle the business and stagnate the, the cause and, and sometimes even cancel the cause altogether and, and move to something else based on the donor's whim. And so this is what I never wanted to do. And also, of course... Uh, just the moral and ethical ways of how the, the donations are used in, 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 in agencies and organizations. So the way that we wanted to do it and I wanted to do it is establish in a way, which I didn't know the name of at that time, but what it is now, I'm known as a, a socially sustainable enterprise. And that is, you know, creating the, the flow of, of profit and the profit would be then transferred towards the nonprofit activities. So basically self-funding consistently. Everybody would, you know, and I always I always wanted to make sure that everybody gets gets paid. So I, I don't really believe in volunteerism as as a as a method of sustainability as well. Um, people need money, people need to eat, people need to live and therefore and also they need careers. And I always thought that, you know, I prefer to do it slowly, but but fairly, so that I also have sort of retention of, of talent when people who, who's, who, who are, 
were bright and they also believe in the same cause. I didn't want to lose them because they just needed money and I wanted to go elsewhere. So that was a lucky thing for me because I, I've retained a lot of an, just amazing people that are with me for years and years and years. So, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, how we started, God. And, and so we sort of created a tariff a small, very simple one, vaccinations and, and just simple things. And we kind of opened up to a public uh, and we already had some, had some followers already because people knew quite, it was widely known that I'm a rescuer. And when I, when I said that I'm going to open something that people kind of were waiting. And so it was a word of mouth mostly that, that people started coming through and we, we started with boarding because I didn't have a vet at the moment, at the point. So I had boarding and daycare and then we had a vet. And so we started offering a little bit more and a little bit more. And there, a lot of it was my own money in the beginning because it was not profitable at all. But it wasn't much different for me. It was still better than what it was before for me because I had, you know, house full of animals and I had to go somewhere else to look for vet care. So anything better than what I was, was still good enough, right? So when I started and I, I had to spend, let's say, 90% of the money I used to spend, it was still better. And then, you know, we kind of moved forward to, you know, doing surgeries. And then I, I was spending, you know, 80% and 20% was covered by the clinic. So in the, in the first couple of, well, in the first year, for sure, it was more of a trying to lower my own expenses on the rescues rather than, you know, making money. And I was proactively doing uh, rescue even as I started the clinic. So I've never started the business. I started a veterinary wellness center for animals and people with animals. I've never started a business. I've never had a business model. I've never had goal that a financial goal that I needed to achieve. I had goals in terms of expertise that I needed facilities that I needed, staff that I needed to get to the point that my goal of welfare, animal welfare, animal health, human health is getting better and better. And that somehow just translated into animal mama in terms of the business. And, you know, so it, it's, it was never... I sat down and, and wrote the business proposal and thought a lot about this and thought, how much money am I going to invest and how much money would I need? None of that. Completely ad hoc, woke up, somebody built the clinic, I walked in and decided to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That, that's, that's really great to hear. I mean, a lot of the founders that we have on the podcast, it's, you know, that's, that's how it starts. Um, for, for, for many people, like we had these, uh, these guys from a tire lounge and they they said they said their their advice that they gave was like you know be known as a baker before you open a bakery right and i think it sounds like the same thing with you it's like this was already such a passion for you that it then turning into like a, a professional endeavor like is it was just such an easy it was it was so natural yeah. to, to head in that direction and if, you say like baker sorry to interrupt but i'm not a vet that's the, you know, I'm a rescuer. So, and so it's really something that, you know, I go back to it and I think like this, there were so many lucky things that I've done and 
and as I said, one of them is kind of like, you know, in the first couple of years, minimizing my losses <laughs> rather than anything else and trying to get to get back to reality in, in terms of financially and also trying to to really help the animals, like not just, you know, one by one and trying to see like I really was trying helping like, you know, uh, yeah, so. And, and yeah, and then kind of it's, it's blew up into, you know, people wanting to come and work with us. And, you know, the first nurse that worked with me was this, this, the gentleman called Vichet. And he came in to, to interview with me and he just started, finished his bachelor of animal science and lovely guy, very, very shy. And in 2016, he started 16 or 17 and I had nothing to teach him, really. I mean, everything, you know, I was just telling him, like, we need to save as many animals as possible. Here's the doctor for you. You just go for it. And then I realized that this is what I need to do. I need to start educating the kids that are coming out of schools and really want to do something for themselves. So as I started, like, hiring and or starting getting the stuff of nurses in 2018, I decided I'm going to put them through DVM. I saw three very, very good nurses that worked with us. And I said to them, do you want to be doctors? And they were like, well, I said, come. I mean, let's put you through school. I'll give you a scholarship, full scholarship. I'll pay for everything. You have to work here, though, full time. And the school allows them to study part time just two days a week. So I said, you, you, you work full time and you learn. And then you, you go to school and you learn whatever you learn there. And then you come back and apply those, those skills in, in, in our clinic. And they're doctors now in my clinic, right? And they're senior doctors in my clinic. And they're doing all these surgeries. And they're the first three that, that graduated. And now they're also authors because we do a lot of research with universities outside Cambodia. So they're already published authors in veterinary medicine. They're doctors. And so once I saw that possibility, then we just ran the scholarship consistently. We just saw, we took a lot and we, you know, we saw the best. I picked the best and I sent them in to study. So now we have, we're going to have 10 as of 2014. Yeah, 2014, we'll have 10 scholars, 10 doctors that came out of it. So what I'm, what I'm saying is, again, the the idea that I wanted to do it, to, to do, to pursue my passion for animals with people who have intelligence and, and, and expertise and passion and shared my passion and just didn't maybe have tools to do that, like having DVM. And so we, I grabbed onto those folks and I said, okay, you know, let's see, let's, let's do something for you guys. And so that you can keep coming with us and you keep coming on this journey with us and they're still with us on that journey so and they're you know a huge rock on which animal mama is standing today so a lot of investment not only in your passion but also in the passion of people like-minded people who decide to be on that journey with you has also made it into the the enterprise that it is today right i think as we were discussing earlier like you know, you can't you can't have with with an industry that um where you really were building the industry in the first like let's say five years that so you couldn't really take a commercial approach because there was so much to do there was so much training to be done and there was so much to do also on the um the shelter side of things 
So it doesn't sound like it's like even the veterinary clinics that exist today in 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 Phnom Penh. There's you know it's only recently that this has become even like a you know let's say a profitable endeavor <laughs> for people. So maybe you can also just talk about you know maybe the first half of what were some of the challenges were to kind of to realizing this vision you know along the way and of course maybe you also talk about how how covid impacted everything and how you were able to deal with that so challenges very common to the challenges of every vet out there in the world and that is that the veterinary institutions and clinics and and places are often seen very different from the the human doctors somehow people assume that you have to if you love animal you'll do it for free that's the one thing that we constantly see right so they the person comes in and they say uh you know i have no money but do it for free because you heard you love animals sure that's and that's you know fair enough but it's also a profession so for somebody who is not an ngo somebody who is not an organization that is invested in also helping it's fair for them to make bread and butter on on the profession that they studied and and they wanted to do so the huge challenge is explaining to people why the vets need for instance blood work on on animals and that's the challenge from the beginning because the idea somehow and that misconception of people i don't know why and where it came from the misconception is that the vet just a visit to the vet is going to solve all the problems. The vet is just going to have like a magic x-ray vision, like a Superman. And then he'll see everything inside that animal. And then he'll talk to the animal in the, in the voices of, or, you know, in a special language and everything would be understood. And I just, and it consistently surprises me how it's, it's across the board. You'd think it's only with people who might be not as educated about things, but actually you you have, you know, a PhD rocks up and goes like, don't you just know? Like, why do you need a urine sample? Hello? Well, I don't know, because your cat is being blood. So, so you know, the expectation that people come to the vet is that they will rip you off. The vet will rip you off by doing the unnecessary tests. So that's the first thing that were unnecessary things. So that's the first thing that we have to deal with. The second thing that I've learned a bit later is that it's an international problem. The suicide rates among vets globally is topping the charts. So the, the profession in itself has the highest suicide rate among any other profession in the world. And that is because the vets are dealing with a lot of suffering they're dealing with some failures because, you know, you, you're not a magician. You're dealing with the guilt trips from the owners. You, you're often, like in Cambodian environment, you're dealing with lack of proper medications or proper equipment. And then you're dealing with, with something that human doctors do not deal with, and that's euthanasia. And that is a very, very difficult thing to do. Uh, so the emotional side of things is quite difficult. For us in particular, we're dealing with the worst of the worst, right? So we're dealing with animals who are coming in off the streets, who are coming in from the pagoda temples, where, you know, so sometimes on the last breath, you know, and the challenge was in the beginning, very emotional one, because I was overwhelmed with the amount of suffering 
Um, I didn't realize it when I was running the rescue center because I was just doing like ad hoc pickup, right? But suddenly, you know, you have people walking into the and 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 mass and and they they bringing the 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 most horrible cases. I also, I mean, it was also very difficult to deal with human cruelty. A lot of people want to euthanize their animal because they're moving to another apartment and it's not allowing pets. Or some people, you know, I don't, I have a kid euthanizing my dog because it's not convenient anymore. So there's a lot of emotional side to it. The way I've built the practice, though, is that I've separated vets because I understood how difficult it is to be on that receiving side. I separated the the admin and vets. So our vets do not get engaged in money negotiations at all. They don't get engaged in um, questions whether to save or not to save the animal. They don't. So the policy is: the animal comes in, we always help, regardless. Money, no money. We don't ask for deposits. We don't ask for any of this. So animal comes in, we help. So that the doctors don't have to run around with dying animal and ask me for approval to treat it. They have always my approval. It's it's without saying they have to treat the animal. The second rule is we don't, again, from the experience, the rule is we do not euthanize ever unless it is the only option to end suffering that cannot be helped in any other way. Okay, so we would not. So again, I've elevated that from the vets who who I know might be under that pressure from 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 people euthanize, euthanize. It's it's taking life. It's killing. Right. I mean, it's not easy. So, you know, the comfort comfort euthanasia doesn't exist in any moment. And the third thing is that if somebody comes in and they cannot afford the treatment, the vets say they need to talk to the admin and admin and does whatever they have to do. If people don't have money, we, we don't, we still treat animals. So that's kind of like three things that, but it's still really difficult because people pretend they don't have money, right? I mean, they can lie. And there's a lot of people that take advantage of it. So it's it's not easy, but I guess we're managing somehow. Yeah. So it's day-to-day thing. It's it's never, we don't have a set tariff that we would charge this much money for everything that everyone comes in with the same price. It's never like that. Somebody comes in and they get it for free. Somebody comes in and they only have $5. Somebody comes in and they have full price. That's just the way it is. Yeah, I can't imagine especially in the i can't imagine that it gets i wouldn't want to say easier over time but it gets more like it's it's more clear on the decisions that need to be made when it you know once you establish these policies in the early days it has to be like a very heavy emotional undertaking that it's not just like one or two animals right you're you're dealing with with Hundreds. tens hundreds of animals you know on on basically a weekly basis and it's yeah. a lot of people may look at things from a business perspective but the emotional side of running a business like this is it's very tough and yeah, so it's heavy it it's is very, very heavy. heavy yeah, yeah. And, which is something that you know it's it bothers me a bit that that there are vet institutions out there not only in cambodia out there that do it only for money it shouldn't be done only for money. This is not the place. That, that, that's, 
you know, it's like being a doctor for money. You can't, you can't right. be a human doctor. You have to have a certain passion and empathy and moral stand towards, you know, a well-being and, you know, the right for health services and things like that. So I, I really, I have to say this is my bad beef as people who are doing it for money. I can't, I can't handle it. And you mentioned as over time, your shelter side of the of, of Etamalama has has grown significantly. I, I we we had a conversation about a month ago discussing about the number of animals that you receive on a daily basis. It'd be good to give a bit of a framework of how how that side has grown over the years and kind of what what is currently like the current state of it now. Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm not going, you know, my answer also will go back to COVID as well, right? Because, so we started with about 70 animals when I started Animal Mama with a shelter. And then I started in 2016. By the time we got to COVID with all the drop-offs, we were at about 400 in the, in the shelter, right? All self-sustainable, self-sustained, right? Uh, plus... Since 2017, we engaged in consistent um, rabies vaccinations of free rabies vaccinations of animals in the pagodas in the streets. Uh, plus, we engaged in mass desexing missions, and we did it in Batambong and Pelin, in Siem Reap, in Phnom Penh. Plus, we did the feeding and service to the pagodas on a daily basis. So overall, it's hundreds of thousands of animals that have been served by Animal Mama for for free. About we, I think we reached about seventy thousand rabies vaccinations this year that we reached out. So that's a lot. Rabies being a huge issue in Cambodia, Cambodia is number one country where humans die from rabies in the world. So this is a huge pandemic that needs to stop completely needless as well. And so we created, we were the first ones to create the, what we called Pagoda Protocol, which included vaccinations, rabies vaccinations, desexing, so that there is control of the population, microchipping and deworming. Because later on with the research, we also found that people have not only suffer from rabies, but also from gastrointestinal parasites that kill a lot of children. Um, so, but that's sort of on a later basis we found it out. Um, during COVID as well, there was a kind of a mass drop-off drop of animals because people were leaving to their own countries. There was a bit of a panic. And so we ended up with a lot of animals in, in the shelter where people, some people came back for them and some people never came back for them. And then on daily basis, I, I would suppose, I would say that, we, we, first of all, we have a lot of kind of secret drop-offs, what we call like Santa Claus drop-offs, which is people come in with the, in the morning before we open and they leave the box outside or the bag garbage bag outside and when we open it's like a bunch of kittens or a bunch bunch of uh, puppies sometimes people drive by like there is a drive by drop off which is people drive drive by and just throw the animal into the clinic like we've had that as well it's no. crazy it's full on crazy yeah yeah that yeah. is insane insane yeah we had a puppy that i mean i remember that puppy so well the woman was driving by back and forth and we're like what is she doing and then it started like getting darker a bit and then she just drove by and then there's something you know being thrown at the clinic and we're like my god you know with all that i thought it was a bomb or something <laughs> no nope. puppy so yeah we have that 
a lot. And, and that's kind of what you know, Animal Mama is known for, is that we never leave the animal behind, ever. We never not take care of the animal. But there's so many negative... Uh, there's a lot of pressure on us, I suppose, and people don't understand that we don't take donations and people don't understand that we have limits in our how much we can do. We have limits in, in how much financial capacity we have. And, 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 you know, this is where we engage in a lot of communication with the public and education with the public and, and trying to explain to them that you need to help us. We are ready already. Like, this is a lot. There, there's no other vet, vet out there who is ready to do what we do. It just, I, I challenge anybody to come forward and tell me that they're doing what we do for free. But it's necessary for community to take responsibility as well. So, you know, uh, in early days, there were kind of people who would like find the animal and then call us and say, I found an animal, you know, I, I want to rescue it. Can I bring it to your clinic? My question was always, what do you mean you want to rescue it? Who is rescuing? Because now you're a postman man for the kitten. You're just moving it from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. You're not doing anything else for it. You need to be able to take responsibility. Fundraise, there's a fundraising. There is posturing. There is, so there's a lot people can do, you know, to help us to provide that that holistic approach to the animal, right? And it took a while for us to to, and we still we still struggle with that, but not as much as in the first couple of years of our existence. Mm -hmm. We even have like little. Now we develop the, these brochures for people who rescue the the checklist like if you want to rescue an animal what you should you expect and what should you do and things like that so mm -hmm. but again i mean in seven years where we started and where we are is amazing i mean now you have countless rescue groups on 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 facebook the khmer people are super involved in rescue groups that there's lots of rescues out there so it's so much easier not to work with it so much easier i mean still you know the financial issues are still there, but it's okay because we don't have to do everything. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Yeah. That was one of the other things that we had talked about in a previous conversation was this educational aspect of, of you have your, you have more of your consistent rescuer. So better defining what it means to be a rescuer and then being able to educate them on what does it mean to foster an animal? And it teaches skills and different aspects of, of their of a business just for themselves too. And that's also helps. I mean, I think it's, it also gives a respect to the, to the profession of veterinary medicine, right? The veterinary doctor, you got to respect them. They're not just, you know, it's what they do, you know, they need to be able to be funded. You know, they need to be able to have a decent salary. They study more than human doctors and they know more. Again, it's a challenge out there, right? Hmm. Human doctor is usually specialized in one species, right? Mm -hmm. And some, and most of the time, specializing in one particular aspect of that species. For 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 vet, they have to have the multiple species. They have to know how to do multiple surgeries on multiple species. They need to know that the the diets and 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 health and biology and physiology of multiple species. And they still have to do it with their, with no test and just guessing on what's wrong with it, right? <laughs> so I think it's really important to also have that, you know, for me, it was important to create the expertise 
in the clinic and in, in, in our hospital, and then get people to respect that expertise as something that 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 commands the respect that mm-hmm. it's it it deserves, right? So, and I think we're we're there there now. Um, seven years ago, again, one of the challenges was people used to rock up and say, "Where's the white doctor?" And I would say, "What Westerner? I want Westerner." But we have a very good doctors, Khmer doctors. No, thank you. I want white doctor. I want Western doctor. It was it was a nightmare. Khmer people also. Khmers would not want to go to, to, to Khmer doctor. They only want Westerner. So being white or being looking white like a Westerner and kind of trying to, to sound semi-smart would get you to, to, to maybe practice as a doctor if you're, you know, if you're smart enough to, to fool the, the public, right? So this is, there was a challenge for me. And then at one point we even had picture of my Khmer stuff and then I had the photoshopped western hats for mm-hmm. them and we had like a that little comic going on like we you want western vets we have them wow. right <laughs> western yeah because it, it was it was getting annoying and then I at that point I said if somebody comes in and demands western vet they need to leave this is pure and utter discrimination and ra- racism and I'm not going to have it in my clinic that's it and that was also caused some friction with clients because I just refused. Just no. Just you would not go to in the U.S. and say I want Jewish doctor. Right. <laughs> You'd be thrown out of the hospital the next moment, or say, yeah, I don't want African American doctor. Can you imagine? That would be the next day. Unreal. I mean, right? And then here, like full on, I was shocked. Yeah, but come on, uh, I don't. He's dark. I don't want him. Do you, mm. Can I have a white girl? serving me what yeah so there were a couple of moments when we had the full-on blast where i was saying out of my clinic and yeah well i think what's what's really uh, it, you as a leader and a founder and you know and also colleague to the other veterinary doctors and and others that were working in the business too having that like having that that strength to be able to put your foot down and not you know not be not take anything like that. I think that shows a lot. And um, it also is a testament to those that go through your scholarship program and want to come back and work for the business too. It's, you know, they, there's, there's this full alignment. It's, it feels like with everyone that's part of Animal Mama. So I think that culture that you built is, is fantastic from just from the foundation of it too. And that's always, you know, as I said, like, remember in the beginning, I said that when I started, I knew what I don't want to have. And one of the things I didn't want to have is the model by which large humanitarian organizations operate, which is ideally they should come in into the country, build the capacity and get out. But what happens instead is they get into the country and then they create (laughs) the reason for them to stay longer and longer. Mm -hmm. That is not why we're here. For, at least for 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 my organization, for for Animal Mama, for Animal Mama, I came in to try to build an industry, to build a welfare understanding of animals, build an understanding of zoning diseases, build a, a higher standards of of international the golden standards of veterinary practice. Mm-hmm. But my goal is to leave the legacy 
And my legacy has to be not in me. My legacy is in people who are can, will continue, hopefully, Animal Mama for the future. And those should be Cambodian kids and Cambodian generation that will take over. This is this is my goal. This is my dream. I don't want to be the UN <laughs> of yeah. animal, animal Mama, UN of Animal Mama, or however, whatever you say it. Yeah. I don't want to make myself... I want to make myself eventually redundant. Yeah. And I want to make the, 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 the Western vets essentially redundant and, and not need it anymore ever. So this is the goal now. Yeah. And what are the dreams or aspirations do you have for expanding the business to achieve that goal? What kind of support would you need in order to achieve that? Gosh. Um, really, at this point, it's education opportunities for my staff you know i want them to uh, to be able to go abroad and to study and to to continuously raise their capacity as doctors and become better and better because again as any doctor you have to, it's life learning life lifelong learning process so i think for me this is the most important at the moment uh, you know we have every equipment we can possibly have i you know, I reinvest consistently in the, in the business. I, you know, the, and so we get the best of the best of the best consistently in the, in the hospital. But uh, we used to have a saying. I, I, maybe it sounds racist, so don't put it on the podcast. But uh, it's in the Soviet Union. They used to have a saying for for Japanese Japanese made equipment. You need the Japanese running it. I don't know if it's racist. Or I know it's hard to know with the woke culture now. But I think what I really would like to have is is somebody who can take anything and just run with it. Any illness, any equipment, any new, you know, function, whatever it is. And and I want that to be the local local stuff. And at this point, the schools are still very weak here veterinary schools and so all the education is really outside or within the walls of our hospital with our the people that are coming in to teach because I do invite a lot of uh, scholars to come in and teach our staff and different things and diseases and like uh, uh, parasite parasitology and hematology and avian medicine and exotic and medicine and so on and so forth but that's kind of the, the very very important. It's always been important and it's becoming more and more important because as we have all these machines, we need people who know what they're doing to, to operate those machines, right? So again, for me, it's it's an expertise and it's an excellence of, of service that, that that is most important. And I think the rest will come because if we are very, very good in providing the medical care for animals, people will just come. I, I don't want to expand if expanding means just hiring people left and right from outside the country. I want to expand together with Cambodian exper experts. And I want to see the expansion being not just locations with beautiful furniture and nice decor, but also with very, very strong teams leading those those clinics. This is my my goal is not an expansion like corporate expansion in any way. Even though, I mean, it would be lovely if I could have a clinic in every place. But, you know, it's not like we we could. 
I mean, it's not, it's not difficult to create a, a little clinic everywhere. But again, expertise in that clinic is what's important. So it, it's always rotates right back to expertise because I don't want to just have anybody doing some kind of injections that or weird giving pills by the color and not by the function. So, yeah. That, yeah, that makes a lot of sense that like, yeah, the in order to even to expand um, and move in that direction, you just it's best to focus on developing the talent and seeing that expertise improve before maybe embarking upon that. Um, if we were to like fast forward five to 10 years from now, where would you, where would you want animal mama to be um, versus where it is now? I would like to have, oh, uh, I would like to retire in five years, to be honest. I would like to be redundant in five years. I would like not to have a shelter for animal mama anymore. And I would like to concentrate on empowering other shelters to do their work well so that we can do our work for them medically because most of the rescuers and shelters in the world struggling a lot with paying their vet bills. They cannot do anything without the vet. And if we can, we can do it for minimal or no, no fee at all so that the animal benefit and we continue with our goal of helping animals and people. And I would like to see more animal mama locations with, with Khmer staff leading them. I'm not saying I want to... I don't want to see foreigners coming in. It's extremely important in medical field to have new expertise coming in from different clinics, different backgrounds, different medical backgrounds, different fields of expertise within the veterinary medical field. So yes, definitely I want foreigners to keep coming and going. But I would like to see Animal Mama being led by, by our Kumar staff, uh, for sure. More of us, if possible. If not, then quality over quantity. And I'd love, my dream is to have a MRI machine here, which I will do. I will have it before I retire. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Yeah, just, just a final few questions for us as we move on to the uh, last part of the podcast and talk more about uh, your interpersonal side of things. What have been, because, um, you know, th this vision and, and that you've been holding and, and taking forward, of course, I can can see it would be quite all-encompassing what are some habits and kind of routines that you have that have kept you um balanced along the way so i am high functioning autistic person so my routine is very strange sometimes um i need to have a lot of time alone and i need to watch family guy uh, for some period of time and in the day and and I am not very good in social environments. So, which means that I spend very little time in the clinic, just come in, check what's happening and empower my, my team to kind of lead the way because I just simply cannot cope so much with, with consistent information overload. Um, so, yeah, I mean, really th that's the routine. In terms of like what if I wake up in certain time or if I save money in certain way, not really. No, just I have my daily thing where you know I wake up, I have my tea. I have to have certain things that I have to do, otherwise I get quite edgy. I do my therapy if I have to, when I have to. Then I have to watch a certain <laughs> number of cartoons, and then I read, uh, and 
and then I do my work. Uh, I work a lot. I work a lot, a lot, a lot. But I have learned through both therapy and my own self that I um, I can become like you have tunnel vision as you know people on the spectrum have tunnel vision and oftentimes it becomes a handicap because you work yourself to death essentially so that kind of the routine of knowing where to stop is a good one because i remember about 4 years ago when i was working non-stop 18 hours a day no time off no anything I remember somebody said I was dying. They thought I was dying. <laughs> I was like, what? They said, yeah, yeah, yeah. People think you have cancer and you're dying because you lost all this weight. So I realized that, you know, I was having that really unhealthy attitude and and I, I just went deeper and deeper into that black hole. So for me personally, I have to be able to get out by doing certain things every day. Um, but if if you want like a, the formula for success, there is none. You, you just need to have passion and follow it. There is, everybody will have a different formula for success. There, I don't believe in, you know, five things people, successful people do or 10 people, all billionaires do. Shit, they don't do that. They want to do that, but it's on their agenda, but they don't, don't do half of it. So, yeah, I, I, that's it. I just want to say something, though, because I do want to mention that it's, it's a very, very close thing to my heart, and that's Home of Heroes. Um, didn't mention it before and I really want to mention it here whether it gets into the podcast or not I don't know but I really want to do that um, in 2018 I adopted my first demining dog here in Cambodia her name is Muriel and uh, she was facing euthanasia at the time because she she was retired at eight years old as most of the demining dogs are <clears throat> and she had nowhere to go and somebody adopted her, gave her home for one year, but then that person was leaving and they said, you know, euthanize her because we, we can't really handle her and going through all the moving. I knew nothing about service dogs. Uh, I knew even less about, about the dogs that do the hard work of saving humanity from the remnants of war. And so once I started to learn about uh, dogs like Muriel, I became really passionate about trying to to be properly, to show proper gratitude on behalf of humanity to the dogs that do the work for us. And so we created, or I created this, this project called Home of Heroes. And what it is essentially is a place, it's a physical place, where all the dogs that retire can go. It's located in Siem Reap. It's located right in the same property where Animal Mama Siem Reap is located. There are runs for the dogs, there are, you know, agility courses, there are kennels there, there's teams of people who are working with them. And so we are, and we have an agreement with Norwegian People's Aids and Apopo to, instead of euthanizing the dogs, we have a proper system in a way that the dogs come into us. And then we have a program called, within the Home of Heroes, we have a program called uh, Guardians of Heroes. And that is permanent foster program so you can foster the dog forever and we will take care of all their medical bills for the rest of their life all we ask people to do is give the home to the dog to the hero dog um, until the rest of their life the reason we took away that that worry for the medical bills is because that's usually why people don't take older dogs to their homes but these dogs are amazing they're highly trained they're motivated they're just incredibly intelligent 
to the point where you, you kind of think, well, maybe, maybe it was human before. So, and it's it's a really special relationship that you can you can have. These are Belgian Malinois, which are known to be the smartest dogs in the world. And what I'm what I want to say is that when I started this, I started it out of passion and nothing else. I just felt like this is, and I have very a huge connection with animals, anyways. And so that was just kind of like an extra one. Forward towards 2022, the war in Ukraine starts. So I go there and we help refugees. Da, 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 da. I come back. And now I realize that several Ukrainian women who are deminers are coming here to train and go back to Ukraine. <laughs> Sorry. Go back to Ukraine to demine my country. And we are probably, well, we're most likely are going to welcome the dogs that demine my, my country back to home of yours. So going back to passion, it all will make sense at the end. Thank yeah, thank you very much for, for sharing that. We we really wanted we, we wanted to jump into a house of heroes and um just being able to to do what you yeah, just being able to also bring um people from Ukraine to come and see what's going on here as well and, and have that overlap. Um yeah, wow, that's a that, that's a yeah, that's a seems like a really unique um shelter that you have, retirement home for, for these for these dogs. It's actually the first world so another thing I was going to say is that we always live with the idea that everything that has to be, that, that could be invented was already invented. But when I, I started Home of Heroes, you know, we had a lot of media coverage and I realized that there is no such thing in the world. There was no retirement home for working dogs before we started. So that was quite amazing in the same in, in, in that regard. And now with the Ukrainian war and with the whole thing, like the personal, like personally, it's also makes a huge sense for, for me personally, for my, for my uh, work and what I do. And of course for the dogs and I'm really, like, I'm looking forward to meet the women who are gonna, because these are demining women. These are women who are working with the handlers of the dog that are going into demine the field, the mining field, and they follow the dogs and demine the the area whatever it may be so but yeah so sorry <laughs> i'm a bit emotional no no we we really appreciate you sharing that with us and coming onto the podcast and having that kind of vulnerability but also understanding the kind of impact that you're able to to make not only just in cambodia but also from your home country too it's a it's a very rewarding and fulfilling feeling that i'm sure that you're overcome with too and for for anyone that's that's listening as well you know uh, you know we'll we'll be able to share any sort of other links to any other you know parts of the business as well whether that's that that you feel like would be useful to learn about and to read about especially with the with the, the demining project that with the demining dogs yeah that that you've that you've rescued over the you know over the past several years i really enjoyed learning about it from one of our previous calls too. And just knowing that, you know, what, where the dogs were, you know, previously the dogs were going to be euthanized um, just because of, you know, their ability to do their job more or less was they, they weren't capable to the extent in which they were supposed to, but 
being able to provide that opportunity to give them a home and especially in such a fair circumstance for anybody that's willing to take on that's willing to adopt or or bring one to their own home i think that's a it's a very admirable thing and a very incredible program that you've put together so both for you know max and i we we really appreciate thank you, you sharing that with us it was thank you for giving yeah. me that space to to share it because that's something i was saying like any mom mom okay but home of years home of years home of yeah. years <laughs> and i told you before like i can't mm-hmm. stop talking i mean once you get me to talk about what i'm passionate about this is kind of like the weakness of mine i just kept on talking and i realized that home of years got left out kind of saving that for one of the last questions as well okay, so but cool. but um no, don't worry we were going to make sure to cover that thank you yeah. Yeah. okay sorry i no, no, jumped no, the gun a bit sorry it's okay it's okay as we do come to uh, some of our closing questions uh, one that we like to ask each of our guests is what is the greatest piece of advice that you've ever been given can i can i tell you what i was given and also what i would give Yes, that would be so fantastic. The the first one that I was given by, by a very famous professor at Berkeley, uh, I was taking a critical thinking course or something like that, somewhere where I argued a lot. And, you know, with, I guess with my character, my condition, whatever, we, I just tend to argue a lot. And I argued with him a lot throughout the whole thing. And he, he gave us a very interesting pieces to read and then he created a debate and of course I'd come in and argue and argue and argue and argue and write papers and write papers and he would you know flunk me every time like oh, ah, because you didn't think this and I thought that was brilliant and then uh, and I was straight A student I was on scholarships and I thought he's gonna flunk me and I went to the dean and I said this is it I'm you know he's probably anti-semitic or something or probably hates women or I needed to come up with some way of justifying <laughs> why the guy's gonna flunk me right and then and then uh, he dean said you know what I I know that uh, the papers are because we our grade was based on that one final paper it was 100% of the grade which was also quite an unfair thing which I argued a lot about so I wrote that paper immediately went to the dean and said listen you know what first go see your grade and then we'll talk about it and I went I, I was sure it would be F with a big lecture of how bad I am so of course you know sarcastically I take the paper and I go one page two page ten page there's nothing there's no no notes or anything so and then at the end it's A plus and then it says Miss Khoury you have everything that takes everything that's needed to become the best in the field you choose except one thing and that's patience and that's i've carried on this throughout my life is patient is patience is your greatest weapon we always want to do things quickly we want to get answers quickly we want to see if we succeed quickly and the culture also doesn't help us to to be patient as well we don't have time to sit to wait to think um, you know, it's you need to have this instant reward consistently with anything you do. And I've learned, and that's in relationships, and that's in, in work, and that's in the careers, and that's in life and sports and everything. And I've learned slowly but surely. At that time, I thought, as long as I get eight plus, that's it. I don't care what he says. But I still have that paper, and I look at it from time to time. And I thought, my God, this man was genius, because how many times... 
I've learned that patience is the greatest weapon and the greatest tool and the greatest strength I might have, I will have. Home of Heroes is a good example. I mean, I never knew that I would be doing something to eventually help the dog that helped my country. That would be meaningful for me. That's patience, you know, not knowing where you're going with your passion, but going there anyways and trying to make it work. That's passion. That's patience. You know, that's all of that is, is patience waiting and seeing and trying to make sure that you do your best but also being patient for tomorrow and then the piece of advice i will give to some to, to people out there is do not be afraid to follow your dreams your goals your passions but also don't be uh don't think that 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 it doesn't take a lot of hard work and perseverance and patience and sleepless nights to get there. The, the, any, any type of goals in our lives, especially when it comes to something that you're passionate about, you know, I'm an artist, I want to be an artist. Work, work really hard. Get yourself into goals. See yourself in, in a year or two and then pursue it and work really hard. Nothing the water doesn't flow on under the sitting rock they say it in ukraine and that's that's one thing i want to tell people don't be afraid to pursue what you really want to do but make sure you work extra hard to to get there it's not just going to happen because you really love it so that's pretty much it well it on those two points that's something that max and i definitely resonate with when it comes to rising giants we you know, Similarly, for the past three years of doing this, it's been it's been an incredible learning journey. And just as you evolve with your business or platform or whatever it may be over time, it's having that patience, you know, loving yourself through the process as you change, and then just yeah. knowing that things are always going to change too, and that's okay. And it's just if you stay, if you make sure you have that wind in your sail. And you keep pushing forward, you'll be able to achieve what it is that you're meant to achieve without maybe even realizing what that end goal is going to be. And you guys have done an amazing work. I've seen your Instagram, and I thought it's it's also evolving very much. I mean, from the first thing that we've done to now, like I've looked through all of them, and I thought, wow, that's so cool. I mean, look how that goes, you know, and. Really, I am inspired by by people like you, you as well. Um, it's kind of gives the hope to because surely people might have told you when you just started that oh, there's so many podcasts out there. Come on, I mean, you're gonna be like a zillion, <laughs> yeah. you know, number. I mean, who's gonna listen? And here you go, like just patience, you know, just mm -hmm. go for it and work really hard, and you'll get yeah. there. So congratulations, the same to you guys. You did an amazing work, and it's my honor to be here talking to you. Well. And, you know, for on our side as well, likewise, and we, we really are impressed and, and value the work that you're doing too. And want to thank you again for coming on to Rising Giants and sharing your story and, you know, sharing your, your, your thoughts and perspectives and also having the time and chance to be vulnerable about things, something that you're very passionate about. And we really appreciate, you know, we really appreciate that and look forward to speaking with you soon again sure yeah and if you have animals please come to animal mama yay yay <laughs> and if you want to rescue i will teach you how to do it
<laughs> we'll be sure to we'll be sure to put the links in our show notes too for anybody in the audience that is interested in learning about animal mama learning about Home becoming feels. a rescuer as well within in cambodia so we'll be sure to add that there so thank you thank you good luck to you guys i hope you're gonna have a million episodes and bazillion viral views <laughs> ever <laughs> well we really right. appreciate that thank you cheers cheers, cheers. thank you bye